Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. If I had taken that route, Uncle Nearest right. would be dead. Right. Ugh. Like every other Black-owned brand that has come before me, it would be dead. You're listening to Money Moves, powered by Greenwood, a finance podcast dedicated to dropping all the knowledge and gems from the world's leading celebrities, entrepreneurs, and experts in tech, business, and more. I'm your host, angel investor, technology enthusiast, and media personality, Tanya Sam. Each week, we talk with guests who are making significant strides in their fields and learn how they are making their money move. If you're someone who's looking to make your money move, you're in the right place. So open up your notes app and lock us in because this podcast will give you the keys to the kingdom of financial stability, wealth, and abundance you so rightly deserve. Before we start the episode, I'd like to remind you to check us out at gogreenwood.com and follow us on social media at Greenwood and me on all things social at It's Tanya Time to stay locked in to new episodes. We are honored to welcome back a true trailblazer and visionary in the spirits industry, Fawn Weaver, founder and CEO of Uncle Nearest Whiskey. Tell us, how did you birth Uncle Nearest? Yeah, so my my start, really, that, that, that gift of storytelling that I have been able to hone from a very early age. Now, clearly, it was a gift that was given to me. It is not something I earned. Mm. It is not something that I learned. It is something that was innate. So that is the starting gift. I think a lot of people, part of why what they do is so tiring to them is they're outside of Mm. what they were naturally gifted to do. So we're going to start with what I was naturally gifted to do. And that was to be able to tell stories in such a way that it inspired people, it challenged people, it caused people to want to draw in. I've been doing that since I was 18. So when you're looking at the story of of Uncle Nearest, I was diving into the story itself, the story of the first African-American master distiller. And the question became, could I tell the story better than anyone else? Remember, this is not a new story. 
This is a story that was originally in Jack Daniel's biography that came out in 1967. <gasps> it was 2016 by the time I found the story. Wow. And it wasn't a story that wasn't unknown. But the thing that, and they'll tell you this, the thing that Jack Daniels could not figure out how to do was how to tell the story. And a part of why they couldn't tell the story is it wasn't authentic to who they were. You've got a room full of white dudes. It wasn't theirs to tell. How do you tell the story of a formerly enslaved man? You can't tell that story and tell that mm -hmm. story right. Yep. We're working on a, another project that actually isn't Uncle Nears, but it's still in spirits. And the story, when I tell it, gives me chills like the story of Uncle Nears gives me chills. And the reason it gives me chills is because nobody else can tell it. There, You have to find those things that are so unique to you that you know no one could do this better and lean all the way into that. And so that's how Uncle Nearest got started. Is there anyone who is going to put their head down and literally for months on end do nothing mm. but research? Go meet with everybody in town, go interview all of Nearest's descendants, interview all of Jack's descendants, go to every single cemetery, go and meet with all the African-American elders that are still alive. You have to be willing to do what the other people mm. won't do. And that's exactly what I do. So the amount of hours that I put into the research for this was so much greater than any brand would ever do. Because what I was getting to was the, yeah. the legacy, the story. So whether it came out in a book or a movie, which the book does come out next, uh, early next month, we're somewhere between May and June. We're still out of the day. But the book does come out. And before the book comes out, the manuscript will be sold for the film. And so you do have all those things I set out to do in the beginning, but they went in a different order, which leads me to opportunity. You might start off thinking, this is what I'm going to do. Another opportunity knocks on your door that you have to pivot in order to take advantage of it. But it doesn't mean you can't go back mm. to where you started. And where I started was a book and a movie. It won't come out till 2024. The brand came out in 2017 and the brand, the distillery opened in 2019. And you could not have paid me in 2016 to believe I'd own a distillery, not just a distillery, but now one of the top. Wow. I did not know that. Oh, our distillery is one of the top 10 most visited distilleries in the world at this point. And we're, we didn't open until 2019 to our first phase, phase two opened on Juneteenth, 2021. So we're really only two years into this. And distilleries that have been around for 100, 200 years, they don't get numbers even close to ours. Oh my gosh. Okay, when I tell you, when, when you say you have a gift, you have such a gift. First of all, y'all, this is an audio podcast, but my head is nodding like a bobblehead because I'm so engrossed. I actually forgot that I was supposed to be interviewing <laughs> you and I was like, oh wait, I'm supposed to be asking questions because I was so into this story. <laughs> I don't even know, like this is, this is amazing. I love this. Okay. <laughs> and first of all, congratulations. That's a huge thing. No, it is. It's my favorite. I always tell people, don't, don't send me questions in advance. I never read questions except questions in advance. Because where the conversation goes is where the conversation goes. And I don't want anyone to ever feel yes. locked in to the questions they have to ask me. It's going to go where it goes. I, I do have one question that I, I really love because I find, you know, oftentimes people are really struggling for this. Well, what's my gift? How do I find my gift? Yeah. You know, and 
you've had, and it's a hard thing. You can't answer it for other people. But if you were to be able to bottle up a nice answer on how people can explore their gift, how they can, you know, uh, tap into it, you know, I feel like now I'm I'm ter- I'm in my 40s. I know I have a, such a better appreciation and understanding of what my gifts are. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, and so I'm wondering, what would you say to your younger self on how, what are your gifts and how do you use those to find a, to create a life where you can make money and grow your gifts? Yeah, I I think that this is where parents do a great disservice to kids is that we are constantly trying to shape and mold children and the the classroom is trying to shape and mold them. They go to college, they're trying to shape and mold them. I think one of the reasons why so many don't know is because they've been shaped and molded their whole life. Most parents, those who are really in tune and are determined to allow every child's natural gift to really just explore that, you will find that I don't know a single person whose natural gift didn't show up before they were seven years old. I don't know a single person. Mm, yes. That if you truly go back to it, then I tell people all the time, Fawn Weaver at this age is seven years old realized. That's all I am. <sighs> I am not any different in my personality than I was when I was seven years old. I know how to control my anger now. <laughs> Yep. 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 I get it. I get it. You know, I know how to take what is this natural quote unquote rebellion and I know how to channel it so that it's helpful for other people, how it's helpful for myself. But all of those things that were innate to me, that didn't happen later in life. They were innate to me Mm -hmm. when I was a kid. It's one of the reasons Beyonce is so successful. You go back and you look at those videos and her parents saw that so early and they developed that. And so the, the, my, my sister has five, one of my sisters, I have, I have five siblings. One of my sisters has, has five mm-hmm. kids. And one of the things that we marvel at is how she is allowing each child to fully develop as their own. And when I tell you their personalities could not be any more different, but we know what each one of them is going to be if they actually move in their mm-hmm. own gifts. If they don't get shape shifted and molded, we know exactly what each one is going to be because they're already showing it to us at six years old, eight years old, 10 years old, 13 years old. That that is so you really have to take the time to go back to what did you fall in love with? So I'll give you a really good example is we were, you know, I'm, I'm old enough that there were people that were coming around and selling Encyclopedia Britannica's. The oh, set, yes. right, right. It was a thing. It was a thing. Listen, money movers. <laughs> we might be aging ours, but if you had a full set of encyclopedias, big not deal. Only were you rich? Big deal. But it was a huge deal. Big but deal. Let's... Big deal. So, so we we had and we had the Encyclopedia Britannica. Right. We had the whole the whole thing. And I got in so much trouble. And this was, I was young. I think that we were supposed to be reading like Judy Bloom or something like that. Yes. And I refused to read any of the novels because I had Encyclopedia Britannica. So when my parents would get on me about the fact that I didn't write this book report and that book report, and I'd show them something in the encyclopedia, I'm like, but this is actually real. I'll write the report on this, (laughs) but I'm not interested in writing a report on a novel that was made up. So this is who I was as a kid. I refused to read novels as a kid because I had Encyclopedia Britannica. So 
the fact that I do these deep dives whenever I get interested in anything yes. should not come to a shock to anyone who saw me sitting amongst oh. all my Encyclopedia Britannicas refusing to do reports on novels. <laughs> now, right. I got in trouble with my teachers, oh. but this is who I was. So you have to go back to what was I doing in childhood that was different from everybody else? Mm. Because the world shapes us to like each other. But you got to figure out what did you do that was different from everyone? And therein lies your gift. There, that is probably the most beautiful answer I've ever heard to that question. And also, you know, I just, I, I do believe that the evolution of parenting, I'm not a parent, but I have nieces and I learned so much from my sisters who are parenting is so different because you're right. Once upon a time, and I think our parents' generation was like that. They were just like, look, in order for us to survive and successful, everyone's got to get in formation. And now we, this is a gift that we offer to our kids to like dive in, to allow them to be themselves and find that alignment with who they truly are. And I just feel like that's how we soar. How beautiful. Absolutely. How beautiful. And we can't be upset with our parents who didn't do that, they were using the tools they had. Yeah. We're not far Absolutely. enough away from the end of it's people like to track it back to, to, to slavery, but forget, forget slavery for this particular moment. When we were being water hosed and still beaten, we're talking mm -hmm. about the fifties and the sixties. So if that is what our parents and our grandparents were experiencing, then we should not find it odd that that is what they did yes. with us. That what they now call yep. corporal punishment was just the normal way of raising a black kid. And, but it's, yes. they learned, they learned, they passed down what they learned. So one of the most freeing things that a person can do to allow them to progress in life is to say, my parents worked with the tools they had. Hard stop. Yes. Hard stop. Yep. And that's it. And, and that has been, that has been one of the most freeing things for me is my mm -hmm, parents will say mm -hmm. they made a lot of mistakes and God bless them. I left home when I was 15 because that we just bumped heads and butted heads so much. And if, if they could do it again, they would definitely change that. Right. But that's also their growth over time, decades later, you know, exactly. But at mm -hmm. that time I can look at it. And not just say it, but truly believe in my heart. They did the best that they could with the tools yes, they had. That's beautiful. And, you know, I, I also want to reiterate what you said. For you to be able to understand that, that has been a gift to yourself in your own healing. And I think that is so important. And this is, yes. this is why I love these, like, very multidimensional conversations with, like, successful people. Because it's not just about how much you build, how well you can build a business or raise money or, you know, increase revenue. It's also the mindset. And I think this is where we really shift how we can give these messages to so many people, because I feel like I keep learning these things about how I can heal myself, be a better person, come yeah. into my gifts. And it's, it's a lot. We work hard, but you know, the payoffs are well worth it. Without question. And if you have, if you have a bunch of struggle and strife around you, whether that's friends, family, whatever that is, that's going to keep you from reaching your optimal success mm -hmm. because then you always have a pull on you. So if you can figure out, and yep. this, this is just, I don't see a separation of professional and personal. I don't believe that exists. You are a single human being and you can't divide yourself in half. And so if the personal side 
is causing you to be pulled in a direction that you don't want to be pulled in, then your ability to be propelled to where you want to go professionally is going to be hindered. And so this idea that you can work on your professional life and not your personal life, good luck with that. I don't know who anyone (laughs) is able to do that, right? You have to figure out both. And, And so for me personally, that's been a huge part of my success is I am lockstep with my partner in all things, my husband of now about to be 20 years. And we are we are the relay race of all relay races. We will run that leg full tilt and pass that baton to each other. And it keeps us from getting mm-hmm. tired because when I am feeling tired and, and I'm like, oh, then I just pass that baton right to him. He picks it up. So we stay lockstep to make sure that we're both going in the same direction. Oh, I love that. And you know, that's, that's it's it's something that you have to be very intentional about and communication, communication. I'm tired, I need you to pick it up now. Yes. You know, when we see this, but it's really putting it into action where you're like, look, baby, you gotta carry me right now because I'm tired, I'll carry you later or we can both walk now, but it's really the communication that I think takes it to that next level for sure. Yeah, I I heard Brene Brown say something recently that I thought was absolutely brilliant. She and her husband, and I might botch this because I didn't rewatch it. It was on Instagram. But she said she and her husband every night, they they come together and tell each other what percentage they can give. Uh, So, and and they look at it and say, okay, we got to get to 100%. So she will come in and she might say, I only have 20%. And her husband will say, don't worry, I got the 80% for you. She said, but if we both come in and we both say we only have 20%, we've got one hell of a deficit that we're going to have to overcome together. But knowing in advance, I can't pull this for you. I'm too tired myself is really, I mean, that on the communication side is so incredibly important. And I I just love, I just love that thing that they do. We don't do that, but I loved that. Yeah. And, you know, I think there's something really beautiful about that, being able to just have that vulnerability to be like, I don't got it right now. Yes. I need help. Yes. You got to pick it up, babe. Like it's, 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 and it takes practice. Yeah. Um, but it is such a beautiful thing when you can do that. It is. For sure. It is. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp's software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just 
disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Vaughn, I have a couple questions. I want to make sure that we save time because I I want to talk about um, the fund that you raise. You do a lot of um, your foundation as well, but I want to get a little bit into the business and I want to just do a little bit of a fire round of like, how you did yeah. this, right? So you've researched this project, you you become sort of just, I just feel like impassioned by the story, right? And it's yeah. now lifting you up. Take me through like, okay, how are you going to make this whiskey? How are you going to put it in a bottle? Yeah. And how are you going to get national distribution um, at the level you did? Yeah. So how do you make the whiskey? The beautiful thing in the spirits business overall is you can source what you need when you're, when you're first beginning. Quite frankly, many still source. When you When you go to Scotland, the majority of Scotch makers are not making their own product. They're blending a bunch of other distilleries product, and they might have a little bit of their own in that blend. Same thing in cognac. The majority of what the cognac makers that we know, that we buy, the vast majority of what's in their bottles, they didn't distill. And so the making is actually quite easy because you can source that product. In our case, because mm-hmm. we knew that we would be, we might not be as welcomed in this industry. We're quite different. Number one, number two, our story was smack dab in the middle of a of a beloved story in our industry, and so we didn't know whether or not our supply line could get choked if we started to grow too big. Wow, oh, there's a whole podcast on that alone, or maybe a book and documentary. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I did not decide we're going to build a distillery because I just wanted to have a showpiece. I decided out of necessity that if any of our competitors that were much bigger than us 
saw us growing and got concerned and decided to try to choke our supply line, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. they wouldn't be able to because we were our own supply line. Oh. So that leads me to how we built the distributor network. In our industry, and I think other industries have this, but not like ours. In our industry, it is a three-tier system. The, there is me as the maker, the mm -hmm. supplier. There's you as the consumer. I can't sell directly to you unless you come to my distillery. Mm -hmm. In order to sell to you at a restaurant, a hotel, a bar, a retail store, any of that stuff, I have to go through the second tier. The second tier is the distributor tier, is the mob. Mm -hmm. And I'm not speaking in hyperbole. It's literally the mob. They were created during prohibition. They were the ones running the alcohol. And so on the other side of prohibition, we, we think about Al Capone and we think about he went to jail for this and for that. And we know he murdered all these people and all the rest of that stuff. But what he was doing was running alcohol. He was essentially acting as a distributor. Wow. So on the other side of prohibition, all of those mobs, it's all of a sudden people were going to be drinking alcohol again. But they had created a system in which they ran all the alcohol. Mm -hmm. So guess what they mm -hmm. did? They went to their friends in the uh, government and said, this should have a second tier and gave a reason why it should have a second tier. And every major distributor still goes back to those original mob families. Every single one. Guys, this is so crazy. We're actually talking about like the modern day. This isn't a movie. This is like a controlled, organized system to make sure that certain families profit, profit grossly and control the whole industry. Listen, I, I, will, I will tell you, I did a DEI for one of the big three. There's, there's three really big ones. I did a DEI thing and they had their whole team on. It, leadership team was on. Everybody was on. And a person, an African-American woman on the, the call asked me, well, how do we fix this problem that there's no black and brown people in the upper tiers in the ELT? I said, you can't. And everybody on the call, you know, it's one of those Zoom calls where you've got hundreds of faces and everyone's face just looked at me like wide eyed. Like you're, you're here to, to talk about DEI. What do you mean we can't? And I said, you can't because you're the mob. And when have you ever seen a black and brown person sitting with the mob? Never in business. You had Sammy Davis who was performing and he made friends within the mob. But when have you right. ever seen a black or brown person yep. within the mob? Never. And you work for the mob. And no. it was so cool. And I give them so much credit. The, uh, one of the, the, the chairman of the company who is now, I think, fifth generation in this distributorship, he sends me an email and he said, mm -hmm. your, your call was very fascinating. I'd, I'd love to talk to you. And I didn't know he was on the call. It's, you know. 100 faces, a blend, yeah. Mm -hmm. I, yeah, 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 yeah. I didn't realize the chairman was on the call. And we set up a call and we get on a Zoom together. And he said, I gotta tell you, Never before had anyone call us the mob. And then he starts laughing. He goes, but you're not wrong. <laughs> oh my gosh, fun. I can't he said, listen, it's how we all started. Every single one of us began this way. 
And he said, in the fact that you talk to us in this manner, it allows, it makes us take you seriously because you've taken the time to actually research to know who we are yeah, and, and to understand how to deal with us. And so he actually told me, he said, make sure to tell your team. He said, I know that they get timid when we push back on them and when my people push back on them and, and they, you know, they, they don't want to lose mm -hmm. the strip. He was like, tell them, I give them permission to challenge all of my people because it's the only way they're going to move. And so I had an approach from the very beginning that not one distributor will distribute us across the country. We currently have 18 distributors. Wow. One distributor, we started off with eight, with 18 states. Then they bought another one. They bought a, another distributorship that had 12 states. So then we end up in 30 states with them. I am currently cutting 11 of them and taking them down from, because that's too much control Whoa. over my company. You have to know when someone can impact your bottom line because they have too much control. Absolutely unacceptable. And so I, I, but I told them in advance, I said, listen, if these states aren't performing at this level, I'm gonna cut, no questions asked. I'm not gonna have another conversation. They're gonna be at the level or I'm gonna cut them and I'm gonna bring in another distributor. And what so many in our industry, why they have failed is that they think to have so many distributors, that's so much work, that's so difficult. Is it really? If you're having to have a conversation with the same distributor every day, mm -hmm. frustrated because they're not doing their job, by the way, because they don't have to, because they have you in 40 states and they have no competition for your business. Yep. And at that point, they're dictating how your business does. Because the reason why I chose to not go with one single distributor, even though it was offered for the entire country, is because if I'm not performing well, if, if Uncle Nearest wasn't performing well, then they would be able to just look in their system and say, listen, you don't have you don't have the consumers. There's not the excitement because this state only did this, this state only did this, but it's all their states. And so bye-bye. And that's absolutely. So what I've been able to do is say, hey, distributor in California, why are you being outpaced by distributor in Georgia? Wait, huh? Distributor in Texas. Why are you Ooh. getting your butt kicked by the distributor in Virginia? Step up your game. But the thing is, is that if I had taken what is the normal route, which everyone takes for ease, mm -hmm. if I had taken that route, Uncle Nearest right. would be dead. Right. Oh. Like every other black owned brand that has come before me, it would be dead. And it would be dead yes. because someone oh, else on. had the power to put my cases in a corner and focus on their big brands, yep. the ones that make them the most money. Now, don't get yep. me wrong. I'm grateful for the role that the distributors play, but I don't expect them to build my brand. And I'm real clear with them. I expect them to deliver my no. brand, but I don't expect them to build, to build it. But if they're not delivering it at a number that makes sense for me based on what I know their potential to be, because I have other distributors with states with similar potential, Mm -hmm. then I'm, I'm going to drop them and go somewhere else. And I, I'm okay with that. I'm not afraid to do that. Yes, that tier really truly controls our industry, but I know my worth. But you know your worth. And you know that boldness that 
that, you know, ability to just, I'm not backing down and I know how to build, I know the vision behind knowing how you want your business to be run and to be, to be built is, is so and you inspiring. Have to, and you really have to know who you, who you're dealing with. You've got to know, okay, this, this particular industry has been white male dominated for, you know, throw in the number of years, mm-hmm. but why, what's the reason? Give the history. And it's not always just a historical, well, because white men ran the country. In the case of distributors, it wasn't about, it was about a white, white men, but it was about white men who were in mm-hmm. the mob. Mm-hmm. That's different than a regular white man. Yeah, no, absolutely. That power structure, the business structure. Whew. Yes. Understanding how did they come to run banking? How did they come to run diamonds? How did that, whatever the field is that you were trying to be in, understand how they came to run it. And it wasn't just their race. Figure out what else it was other than just their race, because that's your end. That, that is how you succeed. So now, you know, you've mastered and have a very thorough understanding of distributorship, the markets you're going into. What's the next big thing that you think has made you so successful? I, I walk through the door every single time like a wrecking ball. Like it, it will not, it, everyone is not going to be excited to see me walk through the door. I walk through with so much energy Ooh. because I am a believer that number one, I don't have time to waste. So we're not going to do a bunch of small talk. We're not going to do a whole, I, like, I don't need you to pat me on my back. I can pat myself on my back. Let's, let's have, mm-hmm. let's have a real, real conversation. Mm-hmm. And so that will mm-hmm. make a lot of people uncomfortable. I'm un, I'm comfortable with their discomfort because I have a company to build. Oh. I have an entire industry to move forward. So I can't be concerned about people in their feelings. And so I would say that 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 me yes. showing up as my most not only my most authentic self, but I'm always telling you who you can expect from me and I'm delivering on that promise. You're not going to see me waver. When I walk mm-hmm. through the door, I'm mm-hmm. going to walk through with all the confidence and the it doesn't mean I am I have this confidence because everything is going right. Every single day I'm dealing with something going wrong, right? <laughs> I'm literally walking in and knowing in my heart of hearts that I belong in that space and that there's something in that space that is going to help take me to the next level. And I'm there to find that. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. 
Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, I love this. And you know, I will say, Fawn, you know, looking you up, like you are known as one of the most powerful leaders. And so this is like a beautiful evolution to this conversation, because I think, you know, the best leaders that we've seen, they know how to make a decision, they know how to disseminate those decisions. And it comes from a place of strength. Um, But something really interesting you said there, you're like, I'm okay with people being uncomfortable because you are the leader. And I think I hate to genderize the conversation, but oftentimes for women in powerful positions, this is a hard role to play. And it's not hard for you, which I think makes you be an incredible leader, but other people find it difficult because as women, we're supposed to be these like empathic caregivers that's going to make everybody feel comfortable. But you're like, I have a job to do here. And it's much bigger than your little discomfort. How do you balance that? Don't get me wrong. It doesn't mean that that's easy for me. That's a difficult thing for me. I just mm-hmm. don't allow that difficulty to hamper what I'm there to do. That's that's the difference. Mm. Is it is a it doesn't mean that it doesn't bother me. I have to have hard conversations all the time. And every mm-hmm. single time I have to have it, I can feel it in my back, I can feel it in my neck, but guess what? My neck and my back will be fine the next day. I have to have the hard conversation. <laughs> and and so it's not it's not that it is any less difficult for me than it is for anyone else. The difference is, is that I am so purpose driven. I am so clear on what I am here to do and how I am to do it and what I am to do that if other people are uncomfortable in this journey, Mm. 
That's not my discomfort to bear. That's theirs. Ooh. Oh, I love that. Purpose driven. Oh, I love that right there. Okay. Before we wrap up, we've got a couple of minutes. I want to take a minute to talk about the uncle nearest venture fund. Um, and I know that this is something that you have sort of birthed out of your, you know, strong belief to empower um, communities, entrepreneurs. So tell us a little bit about the venture fund. Tell us a little bit about your foundation um, and what you guys are doing, because I think that's very special. I want to make sure everybody knows about it. Yeah. Well, I will tell you on the venture side, this will take us back to the business plans. I started off with the venture mm -hmm. fund, had to completely undo it. And now it is Uncle Nearest Ventures. And I had to do it as separate SPVs. And the reason is, is I, couldn't find, oh. I couldn't find enough BIPOC founded brands with business plans. So this goes back to there's plenty of people with money. We don't have anywhere to yep. put it. And so yep. originally I went to our Uncle Nair's investors are phenomenal. And I have over 100 of them. They're all individuals. And, and I'm about to host. I call them my six man. I'm about to host six man day. And in about four weeks, I do it each year at the distillery. All the the. The investors come out and they learn. We we talk, we recap it, but I tell them where we're going in, in the next year and I tell them where we're going in the future. And and it's it's a beautiful thing. But for each of those wow. investors, during that period of time when we launched this, everybody was trying to figure out where to put money to support black and brown. I mean, everybody. And so making mm -hmm, a few phone mm -hmm. calls, it was really easy to round up the money. Then I began looking for the brands. And that was a problem. There were not brands that were ready to go. And by ready to go, I mean, you don't have a backup plan. You don't have another job. Yep. You have a full yep. business plan with a SWOT analysis. And you can tell me how you are going to make this money work. There weren't enough. Yep. And so I literally, I, we, we deployed the first, I think, 16 million and I literally looked at it and said, we just, we have to pause and wait for something else to rise to the top. And it hasn't happened, but it hasn't happened, not because there aren't some others, but because there were so many others that also committed so much money to black and brown in every mm -hmm. area that mm -hmm. they began mm -hmm. funding those with no business plan. Oh, ooh, this is a whole thing. I literally just had a conversation with someone who heads up a really large fund. And I said, you are, you are giving them just enough money to fail because they don't have a business plan. And that's not enough money for someone without a business plan. And this sort of cannibalizes the industry for these communities, right? Because now we have these higher rates of failure. It's a problem. Oh, this is a whole conversation. They, then they're able to look at all the failures and go, well, we tried. That didn't work. That didn't work. That didn't work. And because it becomes specifically a community of BIPOC people, it's, it's, it is a proof point that is against a community of, of BIPOC people. It's exactly. And, and no one is going to say, well, we invested in somebody without a business plan. Yeah. They're going to look at it and say, all these BIPOC founded brands failed. Yeah. But no one is going to say why they failed. Right. right. And that's why they failed. They oh. didn't have a business plan. They didn't have leaders that didn't have a, a, a fallback. They didn't have some other job that was paying them. Yeah. And, and then you didn't give them enough money to really be able to succeed. And so for us, one of the big things is, is that I didn't want to give anybody, I didn't want to invest less than 2 million in any, I wanted to make sure that this was a brand 
that could grow to be a legacy brand. Mm -hmm. So we didn't invest less than 2 million in any of these, of any of these brands. And I literally could not find another brand out there wow. that was ready for 2 million. I, I get that. I, not a single one. And I went through over 200. Oh, I believe it. hundred percent. I believe that. I believe that. I think that's a bigger conversation for the state of like early stage companies, how we grow, how we scale, how, you know, I think honestly, like as someone who's run um, multiple accelerator accelerators through Morehouse, Atlanta here, I know exactly the problems that these early stage companies have. And I think that that's where, you know, the real work can be done to help these folks. And it's never, it's oftentimes, like you say, the idea that it's your first company, your first idea, you know, when we look at the story of Facebook and it was some, you know, Mark Zuckerberg was an 18 year old kid who built this, like, I believe it, I believe it happens, but there's a huge bit of education around what it takes to build these companies. And you are, have embodied that. But also look at how early Mark took in VC. Yes. So Mark had some powerhouses surrounding yeah. him yeah. very, very early on. Yeah. Facebook would have failed if those VCs did not step in. Yes. And so that we can't look at that and say that was Mark. Yeah. That wasn't Mark. It was the VCs that were brought in. They had the experience. Yeah. That's very, very different. And I'd love, I mean, I'd love to have a whole conversation on building a team because as we mentioned in the beginning, you have an all female leadership team. And team is so important. Yeah. You know, team is the wind beneath your wings. It is really how like you can grow and scale to the next level. So as we wrap up, because I'm certainly cognizant of your time, I want to ask you um, about hiring. I think this is one of one of the things that when people look back, it was integral to their success. And you could say there might be something else, but I want to ask, can you give us some wise words on hiring and building out your team? Absolutely. There are two things that I did that I think is the reason why we have such an incredible team. The first happened very early on as as a company, we collectively, the people that were the very few people that were here at the beginning, I wrote out 10 company principles mm -hmm. and I sent it to everybody that was in the company. And I said, give me get rid of the ones you think aren't important mm. and add ones that you think are important. And we refined our company principles as a company. Mm. Everybody had complete buy-in. So then we had an entire company of people. And by entire company, I mean, we're talking about a very small number. I don't even know if we had 10 people at that time. Mm -hmm. And you are, everyone has a complete buy-in because they helped to write these mm -hmm. company principles. Mm -hmm. so then in every job posting for Uncle Nearest, if you go back and you look, we haven't done a job posting in years. And I'll tell you why, because that's the second thing. The if you go back and you look at our job postings, what you had to get to to actually get to the job description is you had to read all of our company principles, the description around our company principles. And if you agreed with all of them, then you should look at the job description. And so we were telling people out the gate, this is who we are and we're not changing this for you. Oh. So if you fit within this ecosystem that we've already created, you're welcome. If you don't, do not apply. And it was so it was like you literally could not get into our company without these key tenants. Now, as we continue to grow and we literally abide 
by those company principles. You ask anyone in my company, you go, what are your company principles? They may not be able to tell you all 10, but they're going to be able to tell you a good number and they for sure will be able to tell you the top three. Wow. And that is a core yes. of what we are. It is a living, breathing, just, it, it, it is our ecosystem. It is who we are. And so because of that, then as we began to create this, this amazing culture, then you had so many people wanting to be a part of our culture. Well, the question began, came, how do we protect this culture? Mm. We don't just let people in. So we haven't done a job posting in years because the way that you come into our company is you have to already be operating and, and meaning one of yes. our team members literally has to say, I've seen this person out in the market. They're amazing. We go out and we find our people. We don't let people apply for the jobs. Someone in our company has to vouch for someone else. And they have to have either been working with them. Say, for instance, they work for a tasting yep. company or distributor. Mm -hmm. They have to have been working with them for at least two years before we will bring them into our company. Every single person who has come in as a new hire over the last two years was already working with one of our team members for at least two years. Wow. Now in some capacity. that is sensational. That is really special, but I, it makes a lot of sense. Like I would like to say people are proud to be drinking the juice. Yeah. Well, it's a, <laughs> people don't understand the, the cost of turnover, right? Yes. And so yeah. they'll bring in, they'll bring in these superstars. I don't want any superstars. Give me a rock star. Give me yeah. someone who is solid as a rock, who's stable, who I know every day they are going to go out and they're going to do the job. We don't do competition within our company. I know that that's really unheard mm -hmm. of, especially for salespeople, mm -hmm. but we share best practices. And so someone was asking me the other day, you know, who are those, actually was an investor, was asking me, who are those few people in the company that are like your superstars that you want to try to get everybody to? I said, I don't have a single one. No one gets to superstar status in, in my company because we've built a culture that they're so excited to share with their colleagues, their successes <gasps> and their oh. best practices that nobody gets too far ahead of anyone else because they're constantly taking the best practices from each other. Yeah. And they're constantly improving together. Yeah. What a beautiful culture. It's really, really beautiful. I love it. Vaughn, before we wrap up, um, can you, I want to say one thing, you know, supporting businesses like this, we started off by saying like, I am the first person to walk in and be like, I'm asking for uncle nearest. And if they yes. have it, they have, if they have it, I order it. And if they don't, it honestly plants a seed where it's like, who yes. I need to get this. I need to get this. So I implore all the money movers that are listening, ask for these things. This is how you help support black businesses. This is how you support businesses that you like that are coming and growing. Ask for it because that's how you get things Absolutely. on the shelves. But can you tell us where we can find your product, where we can come for a distillery tour, where we can find you on social yeah. media? We need yes, to know. our distillery is in Shelbyville, Tennessee. We've got 423 spectacular acres. And you, it is not like any other distillery experience in the world. So I always tell people, if you're going on some type of distillery tour, any of that kind of bourbon tour, whatever, come to ours last. You will be otherwise disappointed everywhere else you go. <laughs> We've literally built out something that, and this is not this is not exaggeration or hyperbole. People are there for eight hours <gasps> because we've built out so many things for people to do while they're there. The tour is ninety minutes, but that's only a fraction of what there is to do on our grounds. And and that was very very intentional. We wanted people 
from every background to be able to come. We wanted people of every age group. Most of our tours will have like three generations on it. And I love that. And so that that is that. In terms of Uncle Nearest, I, I don't even know how many locations we're in at this point, probably 50,000. I think it's harder to not find Uncle Nearest at this point than it is to find Uncle Nearest. The question is, is that when you see Uncle Nearest, do you order it, do you buy it? That is the, the piece that is uh, the most important. But if for whatever reason you go somewhere and you live in a city where you're not seeing Uncle Nearest everywhere, if you go to unclenearest.com and you put in your zip code, it's going to show you the hundreds or thousands of locations that are near you. Oh my goodness. Um, Fawn, you are such a delight. You're such a joy. Thank you so much for carrying on this legacy. Thank you for all the work that you do and dropping so many gems for us today. We appreciate your time on this podcast and we definitely appreciate your whiskey. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate you so much. Thank you, Money Movers, for tuning in. That's all the time we have for today, but you know where to find Fawn and you know where to find that whiskey. So please, please get out there and cheers to you, salute, whatever you say. And let's raise a glass and we're toasting to your success. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If we helped you make your money move, please share it with your community. Subscribe and leave us a review on iHeartRadio and Apple Podcasts. Follow us on social media at Greenwood and visit us at gogreenwood.com for more financial tips. And remember, money movers, if this were easy, everyone would do it. So take the lessons you've learned from this episode and apply it to your life. Money Moves is an iHeartRadio podcast powered by Greenwood, executive produced by Sunwise Media Inc. For more podcasts on iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Make sure to tune in Monday, Wednesday, and Friday and subscribe to the Money Moves podcast powered by Greenwood so that you too can have the keys to financial freedom you so rightly deserve. Until next time. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcasts.